Hello and welcome to the Digital Works podcast, the podcast about digital stuff in the cultural sector. My name's Ash and in today's episode, episode six of Bytes, which is our regular short form series where we look at three interesting things from our most recent Digital Works newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter on our website, which you can find at thedigital.works. And joining me today, and for all episodes in this series, is the person who puts the newsletters together, my colleague, Katie. Today, we're going to talk about some of the things which are in the newsletter, which was sent on the 29th of January. And there is a link to that edition in the show notes. Our first thing is in fact a bundling of things because thematically they feel like they are related. And I would like us to discuss the fact that the Association of Cultural Enterprises has decided to leave X. I would like to talk about the article that Hugh Wallace wrote about being thoughtful about where you're active on social media. And I would also like to talk about Substack and the fact that a number of writers and newsletters have left the platform because it feels like all three of those things that you shared are speaking to the fact that no digital platform product or service is neutral. And I think particularly for cultural organizations, there is a real need to be thoughtful and sort of evaluative is that a word (laughs) you need to be evaluative in your approach to which platforms you're active on and you know hugh's article is is a long read a brilliant read talking about his sort of journey through the early days of social media and to where he is now and he's really talking or, or imploring people to be more thoughtful about you know, why are you on these platforms specifically? And is your presence on those platforms actually meeting those goals? As I said, Association of Cultural Enterprises have decided to leave X, and I'd be fascinated to hear more about that from you, Katie. And Casey Newton and others have decided to leave Substack because, in short, Substack has, as the Atlantic headline said, a Nazi problem, in inverted commas. And Casey Newton and others raised this with Substack CEO, and his response was somewhat lacking, shall we say, in terms of actually seeming like they would do anything about the Nazi problem. So, Katie, it feels like all of these things, as I said, are linked and related. What are they telling us about the sort of state of platform ethics at the start of 2024? Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because when social media first arrived, there was debates around, are these companies media companies or are they essentially kind of online communities who are gathering together user-generated content so they're not overly responsible for it? And there has always been this debate about where is the line drawn between what Facebook or X or whatever where they're responsible for the content and where, you know, there's a kind of freedom of speech issue. And we don't seem to, as a society, have figured that out yet. So at various times, you know, Facebook and Twitter as it was, 
have sort of dialed up or down the moderation. And yet we're still in a situation where these things keep happening. And, and I think that is because fundamentally, if you are a media owner, so if you're the Guardian or the New York Times, not only are you bound by certain sort of regulations, you know, there are laws that surround what you publish on your owned platform. But it is tricky. And of course, you know, with the Substack issue, what happens is this, as soon as you get into a debate about there are bad people on this platform saying bad things, a bunch of other people will say, what about free speech? We can't just shut it down. If we shut it down, then it just goes away somewhere else, but it still exists. At least if it's there, we can debate it in the open. And I have to say, I don't envy any of these platforms, really. It's pretty obvious with X, as it is now, that Elon Musk is, you know, he's a free speech absolutist. He, well, so he says he is. So it is clear, I think, that X is in a slightly different realm to perhaps some of the other platforms. And that's why organizations like the Association of Cultural Enterprises and others are leaving. But it's funny because, you know, if you say, oh, well, I'm leaving X because, you know, ethically it's, it's a bad platform, there is just an, as much of an argument to say, well, you know, there's all sorts of horrendous things happening on Facebook internationally. So if you have, you know, if you as an organization has these clear ethics, like why is one thing okay and, and the other thing isn't? So all of that is to say, I, I don't know there is a clear cut answer, but I do think it's good to be considerate of these things and be thinking about them and not just carry on blindly, particularly for arts and culture organizations who possibly more than many other sectors consider themselves to be very ethically driven, values driven. And so we do have to think about what we're using and you know who we're supporting in that sense. Yeah, and I think it's exactly that. I think there is a need perhaps or a strong enough rationale for many organizations to exist on some of these platforms. But I think probably the shift that needs to happen is, is a more honest conversation about the compromises or the mm -hmm. problematic parts of these platforms. If, you know, just a, a quick aside, if people want to maybe look into some of the history of why these platforms exist in the way they do, there was a piece of legislation in the States, which is primarily what most of these organizations care about, called Section 230, which essentially absolves any of these platforms mm -hmm. of being seen as a publisher. And it says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider, which is a bit of a get out of jail free card and does remove incentives to have effective moderation in place. And then, as you say, when you add a sort of uh, someone with the perspective of Elon Musk into the mix, things like the Taylor Swift deepfakes going viral oh. last week are not a surprise because there isn't the legislative incentive to guard against those things and nor does he really care. No, and he got rid of all the trust and safety people at exactly. Twitter anyway. Like he wasn't apologetic about it. He doesn't think it's needed it. I think the other thing, it's interesting recording this today and yesterday, you know, Zuckerberg and um, TikTok CEO and the Snap CEO, they were all testifying before the Senate, you know, about sort of social media and the harms of social media. And Zuckerberg actually apologized to families who say that their children have been harmed 
by social media. And that is quite interesting that, you know, obviously it made the headlines everywhere. And the reason it made the headlines is because the fact that he would actually apologize is an acknowledgement of, you know, the responsibility that these platforms have, which is self-evident. But the fact that they would actually come out and say that is a bit of a change in stance, I would say. The second thing that I would like to pull out of your most recent newsletter is the work that the National Gallery's social media team are doing. You specifically cited their work on threads and on TikTok. So what do you like about it? What can other people learn from the way they're approaching this? It's ironic, isn't it? We're talking about the harms of social media and then we're like, hey, this is really good. I will caveat this by saying that often large organizations like National Gallery or the National Theatre, that if you hold them up as examples of good practice, people will sometimes say, well, it's easy for them. They are a large organization. They have big teams. And that is absolutely fair to say that. But the reason for sort of highlighting what they're doing is because it's very clear that the people running those social media accounts really understand how to use social media well and, and effectively. And it is one of those things that kind of seems easy until you have to do it yourself. Specifically, they show a real understanding of current memes and they're not doing it in a sort of cheesy way. They are piggybacking on those memes and using the artworks in the gallery to, you know, to, I mean, they're having fun. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, humor always works on social media. I think it just shows, it's very difficult for organizations on social media because you always have this challenge of how you're not a person you're an institution so how do you be personable and kind of show personality whilst also being an institution and i think national gallery really hit the mark on that i think their tone of voice and everything is spot on and i mean with threads which obviously is a relatively new platform They've grown it massively, really quickly. I think they've got around 300,000 followers. You know, that's impressive. It's good work. And I think there's a lot that kind of other organizations could learn from it. Yeah, and it, it feels like if you look at other examples over the years of sort of great social media presences, both in the sector and outside the sector, the things that you've mentioned are present in all of them. You know, a real understanding of internet culture and sort of your activity on those platforms being not just aware of what people are talking about or how they're talking about it, but completely fluent in the sort of shape and tone and rhythms of internet culture. Absolutely. And that being specific to each of the platforms that you're on. And I think as well, this idea of being playful, but also being clear about why your institution is present on these platforms to hark back to our first point feels really important. That's a really good point, actually, because that's the other risk with social media, isn't it? That you get so kind of caught up in the memes that what you actually are as an organisation gets lost and you're just making fun jokes and banter. And again, the National Gallery always bring it back to the artworks, to the place. So it's, it's clever. It's really well done. And the third and final thing 
that I would like us to discuss is an article you shared about the, I mean, it was a failure, wasn't it? The failed collaboration between immersive theatre company Punch Drunk and the games company Niantic, who made games such as Pokemon Go. And it's a really, really brilliant article. They've clearly done interviews with a lot of people that were involved in the failed collaboration. And, you know, the byline is Niantic and Punch Drunk spent years designing a gamified theatrical experience that never happened. And I think it's a really interesting depiction of a total clash of working styles, a total clash of how you put work out into the world. You know, Niantic and Punch Drunk are obviously two extremely creative artistic companies that work in totally different ways that it just it reads like oil and water trying to make you know it's just such an interesting and jarring Mm. account of two sets of people that sort of are just it sounds like they're just misunderstanding each other from the from the outset from the moment that sort of rubber needed to hit the road and things needed to start actually happening that feels like where all of the misalignments suddenly exploded into being. But what's your take on this? Yeah, it's a great article. There's so much about this that's fascinating to me. As you say, all this stuff about the clash of kind of structurally how these teams work, what they prioritise, you know, it's one thing coming up with a creative idea, but then realising that on a massive scale, just logistically the challenges of that is, is fascinating. I will say that I really want someone to succeed in this because the vision for it is genuinely like amazing. Like if they'd achieved it, I think it would have been cool and lots of fun. But it sort of shows the incredible difficulty in combining genuine, immersive, in-person experiences with technology at scale for all the reasons that are in this article and that are sort of self-evident what is fascinating to me is that the idea is so appealing and yet trying to realize it is so hard. And, you know, I think this was something that they worked on for years before finally kind of giving up. So you wonder, you know, going forward in the future, things like AI, will that really help as a scaffolding to sort of make this stuff easier? Maybe. But as you're saying that some of the challenge was clearly that they are different types of organizations that work in different ways and historically the arts and culture sector hasn't always worked brilliantly with other sectors particularly tech sectors that's a massive generalization but as a sort of baseline point and i think this bears that out as well and also there there are some other interesting strands in it as well just the fact of how hard it is to create something that is both truly innovative but accessible and safe. You know, some of these things that they tried out, it's actually like quite risky, just meeting random strangers, taking things off them, giving them, you know, all of that, you know. So again, you've, you've layering on top of it, not only the creative and technical challenges, but the safety challenges. It feels insurmountable. Well, obviously it ended up being so. Yeah, and actually when I was reading it, it reminded me of some of the things that I talked about on podcast with Annette Mies and with Eva Lipodova, where they were talking about the virtual reality opera that they produced at the Royal Opera House. And they talk in quite a lot of detail about how you get creative technologists and technology teams and, you know, I suppose 
practitioners in more traditional forms of culture to understand each other and to be able to work together on something that is actually deliverable. And it feels like there's this constant translation required and then re-explanation of, oh, actually, this is really important, but I have to explain it to you in terms that are going to land with you. And it feels like maybe that's the big thing that was missing here is an understanding on both sides or, or an ability on both sides to speak really in the, the language and the priorities of the other side. Because as you said, it, it feels like, you know, Niantic were very focused on how do we scale this? How do we put safeguarding into it? And, you know, Punch Drunk are really interested in sort of like artistically, how do we make this gripping and immersive and interesting and valuable? And it just feels like they were just talking at cross purposes for years, as you say. But it is an absolutely fascinating depiction of a really ambitious attempted mm. collaboration that, you know, I think both you and I would say, we hope to see more of these types of collaborations, but this was a failure. 100%. I mean, all credit to them. And I just hope that somebody will make something like this work quite soon because it sounds fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bytes. You can find all episodes of the podcast on our website at thedigital.works, where you can also find more information about our events and sign up to the newsletter. Our theme tune is Vienna Beat by Blue Dot Sessions. And last but not least, thanks to Mark Cotton for his editing support on this episode. See you again soon. Mm-hmm.